Welcome to the Semper Reformata podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. So in this study, we're going to look at some alternative understandings. See if we can make sense of this 666 number. We're going to do so in three simple steps. And each of those steps will be from one of the particular views of the end times that are given to you in that introduction to eschatology, which I gave out this evening and which is on the website. We're going to look at the modern popular opinion, the one you'll have heard from many of your evangelical friends. Then we're going to look at what you might call a historicist viewpoint, looking back instead of forward. And then we're going to look at the text and see if there's a simple textual meaning. So the first view we want to see is the one that you will hear so much these days, what we might call the dispensationalist view. Now last week at a funeral, I was standing in the funeral parlour and a man came over to me and he said to me, well you've been taking the government's vaccine against coronavirus. So I asked him, why did you want to know that? And his opinion was that it was a means to an end. That the government would would vaccinate everybody, you get in compulsory vaccination eventually, and everybody who's vaccinated will be issued with a card to say that you've got the vaccine, or a QR code on their phone if you've got a, a, a smartphone. And anybody who didn't have the vaccine would not be allowed to go into shops or to get onto public transport or to fly on an aeroplane or to attend public events. Well, actually, there's two things that we need to update that with. Qantas, the airline, I think, said last week, if you're not getting the vaccine, you're not getting on our planes. So it's a good job none of us are planning to go to Australia. And on the other hand, yesterday in Parliament, one of the government spokesman said that there would be no compulsory introduction of vaccination. Well, we'll see. We know that politicians don't always tell the whole truth. Back to my friend. He said to me, do you see if you get that vaccination? And you see if you get that card or that wee code on your phone? That's the mark of the beast. And it's predicted in the book of Revelation. And you'll not be able to go into a shop and buy bread or milk unless you've had the the vaccination. And as proof for me, he quoted Revelation chapter 13 and verse 17. It says there that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. And in the verse before that, verse 16, it says that you're to receive a mark in your right hand or in your forehead. The mark of the beast. Now, he's not the only person who believes that sort of thing. It's common among a lot of evangelical people. They will believe that before the Lord Jesus returns, or possibly after he has returned, during a period they call the Great Tribulation, which follows what they call the partial rapture, depending which variety of dispensationalism that you're listening to. They believe there'll be a worldwide government 
ruled over by an all-powerful dictator and a counterfeit religious system, the kingdom of the Antichrist, and to survive under that kind of political condition, everybody's going to have to conform. Everybody's going to be marked with a symbol of conformity and obedience. And that symbol, they say, could be a microchip or an app on your phone or a literal brand upon your skin or upon your forehead or upon your wrist and that will be needed they say to work or to buy or to sell it's looking at the book of revelation away in the future and saying that what's in revelation hasn't been fulfilled yet it's going to be fulfilled sometime in the future now to be fair we have to agree that it's tempting sometimes to agree with them as you see the march of globalism Maybe a one-world government is in the minds of some people, even as we speak. If you look at the stated intentions of the World Economic Forum, published openly on its website, go on to Google and look up the World Economic Forum, look for its Agenda 2030, and there it is, its Great Reset, its green future for the planet, its almost universally accepted slogan, Build back better. When you see the economic sector's fondness for abolishing national currencies, a monetary system based around digital transfers of funds which are always traceable. So you can understand that people who look at Revelation as being something in the future might look at the world today and say, there's a lot of this is coming true. Okay, that's the first view. The second view I want to look at with you, what we might call the historicist view. There are some people, of course, who think that Revelation is not in the future, but it's in the past. Some in the post-millennial camp who see Revelation as being comprised of hidden signs and symbols directed to the persecuted church of the first century. Now, nowadays, the modern interpretations of this passage can be very frightening. But in the historicist viewpoint, they say that Revelation was not written to scare you, but for the early believers to comfort them, to encourage them in their time of affliction. So in the middle of the great persecutions of the first and second century of the church, they needed to know that the Lord Jesus was coming back for them. They needed to know that he would be victorious. They needed to know that their enemy was defeated. And they needed to know who that enemy was. So I'm going to share one theory with you. The person who was tormenting the church at the middle of the first century was a man who was the emperor of Rome called Nero. Now Nero was one of the most vicious rulers of Rome. Only Caligula probably was worse. But when he was a child, Nero was very artistic. He was interested in art. He was interested in philosophy. He was schooled by a great philosopher, a man called Seneca. He took an interest in poetry and singing. Nero even performed at concerts. Even when he was emperor of Rome, 
Nero performed at concerts. But when he became emperor, a major change came over him. His ego and his cruelty became absolutely notorious. Now in AD 64, 64 years after the birth of Christ, a fire broke out in Rome in the merchant's quarter. The people in those days lived in wooden huts. Rome was basically a shanty town outside of the great buildings. And this road, the fire in AD 64 spread rapidly. And it's reported that some people were actually throwing flames onto the fire to stoke it up even further. And of course then the rumour developed that that was Nero's doing. That he put these men up to it. That they were burning down people's houses and buildings so that when Nero had cleared the ground he could build bigger, build back better if you like. He could build a great palace for himself. Great auditoriums. Now where was Nero whenever this fire was raging in Rome? He was singing at a concert. Perhaps not fiddling while Rome burned, but certainly he was entertaining people while Rome burned. And according to the historian Tacitus, um, the proletariat, the people who lived in Rome, the ordinary people, were so outraged by his absence and the rumours spreading that Nero had actually ordered the fire to be stoked that there was great unrest in the city. And so Nero rushed back to Rome, organised the relief efforts, very kindly reduced the cost of corn, allowed people to sleep in some of the great buildings. But he really, really needed a scapegoat. He needed someone to get the blame off him. And the first people he decided to blame were, were the Christians. And a great persecution began with great cruelty. Many, many innocent believers in Christ were tortured and dispossessed and beaten and slaved and fed alive to wild beasts and torn apart by dogs and crucified and burned in the streets. Nero, quite honestly, was a monster, a vicious persecutor of the church. Believers needed to know that he wasn't safe. They needed to know who their enemy was. They needed to know he was the Antichrist of that day. Now, what's that got to do with 666? Well, in ancient languages like Greek, Latin, there's no numerals like we have in modern English. So they have letters instead of numbers. Now, Hebrew and Greek were similar to that. Numbers were represented by letters. 666, a complex method of numerological equations if you spell it out in letters, becomes, believe it or not, Nero Caesar in Hebrew. People call this method of numerical interpretation gematria. Kevin DeYoung on his website explains this better than I could. He writes, if you take the Greek words Neron Kaiser, which is our words near on Caesar. Transliterated into Hebrew, you get 50 plus 200 plus 6 plus 50, and then 100 plus 60 plus 200, all of which together equals, wait for it, 666. So what they're saying there, 
I'm not saying I believe it for a minute. What they're saying there is that this was a sign for the early church. You couldn't write to the early church and say, watch out for Nero. Because if you did, you would bring down the wrath of Nero even more upon the church. So you had to say it in code, say these historicists. Now there were historical precedents for this. I wonder have you ever been driving along a road and seen a car with a wee fish sign in the back? And that wee fish sign, when you see it, providing it hasn't got a Darwin written inside it, generally means that the person who's driving the car is a Christian. Now, the city of Rome, Christians hid in the tombs under the city, in caves, called catacombs. And they hid there to escape from Nero. Imagine having to live in a cave with dead bodies in it. So how would people know that it was safe in your cave? Hmm? If somebody was coming into the cave and they were a Christian, they had to have some kind of a sign to say, there's Christians in here, without letting the Roman authorities know, without the police finding out. What they did was they put a little fish sign at the start of the cave so that other Christians would know. And the word fish in Greek is simply as Jesus Christ, Son of God, Saviour. Jesus Christos, hohuios tuthau soter. Jesus Christ, Saviour. The Greek word fish, ichthus. It's an acrostic. So people would know there's Christians in this cave. I'm safe here. It's a sign for Christians that they're safe. And so these historicists would look back at this particular passage and they'd say, this number 666 was a sign to Christians that they're not safe. A sign to watch out for the person whose name is spelled out by the letter 666, Caesar Nero. So there's two possibilities. On the one hand, looking to the future. On the other hand, looking to the past. Which do you think you prefer? Let's go back to the passage that we read. I want to call this bit the number of a man. Because now we've got the spiritual interpretation. Revelation is a book in the form of apocalyptic literature. That means that it's a book full of pictures and signs and numbers and mysteries. None of them are literal. They're symbolic. So whenever we hear of a great beast rising out of the sea... It's not a literal beast. Now there are two beasts in chapter 13. And these are not literal beasts. I mean if they were, what kind of a beast would have seven heads and ten horns and ten crowns? And in verse 2 it says that the beast I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. His mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him power and his throne and great authority. What kind of a beast would that look like? But this literature is apocalyptic. This is symbolic. The first beast comes from the sea. This first beast is 
representative, it seems to me, of a corrupt government, a corrupt state. The perversion of political power. It's angry, it's dangerous. Look at all the animals that represent it. A leopard and a bear and a lion all combined speaks of danger, doesn't it? And the source of its power in verse 4. Look at verse 4. They worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And if you look at Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9, you'll be able to see there who that dragon is. The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent of old called the devil and Satan. The dragon is Satan. And the dragon gives authority to this corrupt political system with its great ego and its self-interested agenda. Look at verse 5 in chapter 13. This political system is given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. It's a system that is inflated with its own ego. And it's at war with God and the church, if you look at verse 6 and verse 7. He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. Well, certainly if it's talking about Nero, you can see that's the case. If it's talking about modern days, there's not too many governments today that are godly. Don't know of any. It's a political system that demands the complete allegiance of everyone under it. You must live your life within the defined parameters, including your personal life and your family life. You buy and sell as this beast allows. You will only have children if you're permitted to do so. It goes on and on. And Christians, of course, won't obey, won't comply, because their allegiance, first and foremost, is to the King of heaven and earth. So verse 7 and 8 are important with regard to this first beast. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe and tongue and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb. So this complete allegiance that this political system demands will not be something that Christians can give their allegiance to. People whose names are written in the book of life could never worship a political system of any description, could they? Then there's a second beast, and it's in 13 verse 11. And if the first beast is a corrupt state (coughs) rising up out of the sea, then this beast is a corrupt religion rising up from the earth. Look at verse 11. I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. What does a lamb symbolise? You can't get much weaker and meeker than a wee lamb. It won't do you any harm whatsoever. It seems like peace on the outward, but, but, but inwardly, whenever it actually gets around to voicing its opinions, it would be a very ungodly thing indeed. It speaks like a dragon. Look at verse 11. The second beast, where did it come from? From the earth. Second beast rose from the earth. The goddess of Mother Earth is now getting official 
recognition from companies, saving the planet, maybe just promoting an anti-Christian agenda. It's only speculation in my part, but whatever religious system this beast is selling, even if it's a perversion of Christianity, it looks good to people. It looks like a lamb, but when it actually speaks, the words are directly from the devil. It has the blessing of the corrupt secular state. It owes its first allegiance to the state and not to the Lord. If you look at chapter 13 and verse 12, he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. Causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Remember that in the first century, the Roman state was a religion. Caesar was worshipped as a god. Not in the sense of the way the Greeks worshipped their old pagan deities. The Roman state demanded complete loyalty and devotion from all their citizens. There's an inbuilt desire to want to worship in all of us. So if the Most High God is dethroned in our lives, we will worship something else. Even atheists worship something, even if it's the environment, the earth. And this beast performs signs and wonders which are open and visible. Verse 13. He uses outward signs to fool people into giving allegiance to the political system uh, that spawns this beast. Verse 14. He deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sign of the beast. And he promotes idolatry. Look at verse 15. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. That the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. How could you have a speaking image? Hmm? That's idolatry. It's contrary to the law of God. These deluded people make the system or the government of the empire or whatever their God in place of the one true God. And images don't speak But yet, think of some of our idols that we have today. Wealth and power and recognition and pride and all of these things are idols and all of them grip our hearts and we long for them more than we long for God. And they demand that we worship them. And this beast has authority to punish those who will not comply. Verse 15. So here's these two beasts. A corrupt political system, a corrupt religious system, maybe a church, maybe a false religion. And then we come to the very core of the issue in verse 16. Because this corrupt religious system causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads. The corrupt religions of the world enslave people. So what is this? Is it a literal mark on your head or your forehead? Is it a credit card or a barcode? Is it a QR code or a vaccine? See, none of those things would have been known to 
to John when he received the book of Revelation. What's John telling us about? I think, personally, that it's just a warning. That if as a Christian you take your stand for Christ, if you do not compromise with the political systems of the world, if you do not compromise with the religious systems of the world, and I include in that false Christianity, false religions like the environmental religion that's sweeping around the world, if you don't give your allegiance as Christians should not, for we are not of this world. If you don't give your allegiance to the politics and to the religions of the age, whatever the age may be, then you must be prepared to suffer for it. I think that's simply it. I don't think we need any further speculation. But just to say that Revelation chapter 13 describes corrupt politics and corrupt religion. And there's lots of corrupt politics in this world. And there's lots of corrupt religion. And for the Christian, we can't be involved either in politics that's corrupt or religion that's corrupt. We are the Lord's and we must take a stand for him and him alone. And when we do that, we will be hated by the world and we'll suffer for it. Kevin DeYoung again says, If you don't compromise with the worldly system, you will suffer. In the first century, this meant that your refusal to worship Caesar, to be spiritually identified with the beast, could mean persecution or discrimination or alienation. The world has a way of operating, and when we choose a different way, we must be prepared for setbacks and for strange looks and for shame and for suffering. The mark of the beast, then, is not a literal mark. It is a definition of what we are not. Are we belonging to Christ? Or do we belong to the world? Are we worshipping the Lord in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds, in our actions, in our hands and in our foreheads? Or are we worshipping Caesar? Whose mark is on you? Whose mark is on me? Is it the mark of the corrupt politics and religion of this world? The 666. Or is it the mark of Christ? If it's the mark of God, then persecution from the world will be the result. Jesus said in Mark chapter 13, verse 12 to 13, Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and Cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. One final thing. In verse 18, it says, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. That nearly brings you back to what we were talking about in the early days of Rome when this was possibly used as a warning to the Christians working out the number, calculating. It's nearly allowing us to even consider the possibility that this number 666 refers to Nero Caesar and was designed to make Christians aware of their enemy. 
John specifically instructs his readers to calculate, work out this number. So imagine the scene for a moment. Let's go back to that historical interpretation. A little group of believers in Jesus huddling together in a cave who have seen fellow believers arrested and made to disappear and they're frightened and they don't know who to trust, who really is the enemy. Hopefully someone in the group will understand what John is writing here and he'll translate the numbers back into letters and he'll see that the persecutor who's organising all this is Nero Caesar. It'll be a shield, a means of defence for the Christian to know the enemy and the nature of the forces that are against him. But then, this is not just a mystery. This is a mystery that has an overt solution. Because in verse 18, it says, Calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. A number that signifies what a man or mankind really is. I'm sure you know that in the Bible, the number of perfection we've always been taught is what? Does anybody know? The number of seven, Fred, that's right. Number seven. Seven perfect. We've got the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Every one of them. Three in one, one and three. Perfect. What would that be? Seven, seven, seven. Perfection. What's the number of a man? Six, six, six. Because in everything that we do, we fall short of God's perfection. Because we're sinners. Six, six, six is simply the number of a man. It's our imperfection. So when we're looking at this corrupt state and this corrupt religion that's oppressing the true believers and which we can have nothing to do with as Christians, we're looking at them as sinners who are imperfect. Do you know the only difference between those sinners and us? We've been forgiven and they haven't. They're still wallowing and enjoying their imperfection, their sin. God is holy, holy, holy. 777, man falls short, 666. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, the number of sinful imperfection. So we've seen three different interpretations of what this mark of the beast is. It could be away in the future, like the um, dispensationalists, uh, futurists tell us. It could simply be that someday in the future there will be an antichrist who will come and who will take over the world, a world religion, a world economic system, a one world church, and they will issue everyone with a pass. And without that pass you will starve, you'll not be able to do business. Could be that. Could be the historicist view. We call it properly the preterist view of the people who look back, way back to the beginning, and they put Revelation into its original context that uh, in which John was writing, and they say this is about protecting the early church, and this is a symbolic number that they will work out and they will realize who their enemy is, or you can look at it 
in the way that the Reformed churches, I think, have done what we call a millennialism, where we don't see Revelation as being in the future or in the past, but as being for every generation of Christians. Systems of this world are always corrupt, they're always imperfect, they're always tainted by sin, both in government and in religion. And that the true Christian will not be involved in those things, will not be able to take part in those things, but will worship the Lord and walk in his ways and expect to be disliked, even hated, for that walk.